All right, guys, the only thing that would be more fitting um, for this sermon today and how it's gone and the weather cancellation, all the plans we had, if this were actually the last sermon of, of 2020, but yet it's not. Um, let me just explain to you what, what's going on. The, um, it looks like it's going to rain. And my entire sermon, well, they tell you in seminary, and in any kind of public speaking, you're never supposed to excuse or explain away your sermon of why it's not going to be any good or make any sense. Uh, but those guys never thought 2020 was possible or lived through 2020. <laughs> um, so the, the whole point today was you're going to have all these Christmas carols. And then right before we came up for the sermon, we were going to play O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, which is my Christ of the carols. Um this morning, and then I was going to explain O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and then we were going to have a little bit, a little sermon in there as well, and then the last 15 minutes was going to be this kind of reflection and response, which is how the hymn was designed. Um, but none of that works today, so I'm going to do my best to walk us through this. I hope it makes sense. What I would encourage you to do before you go any further, pause where the video is right now, and go uh, listen to O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. If you can't listen to it, pull it up on your phone and read through it, and uh, hopefully it'll make sense because you're kind of going to kind of need to walk through it as I talk this morning, or you're just going to be like, "Whoo, where did all this go?" Because I'm going to be using a lot of Latin this morning, um, and you're, you're going to be totally lost if you don't know the song and are familiar with it. So, thank you, 2020. Uh, please go away. All right. Uh, yeah, I, I'm just going to pray because this is 2020. Father God, I thank you for today, and I thank you for the people, pressures, and problems, and challenges you have dealt with us. You've given us this year um, and today to sanctify us and to mold us and to shape us into the image of Jesus. And today, more than any other, we do pray, O come, O come, Emmanuel, with your second advent and make all things right. Amen. Okay. So my goal with this, uh, this hymn, why I picked this hymn, was that I, I wanted us to feel connected to something cosmic, something ancient, something transcendent and much bigger than ourselves. And Because when, when we sing the song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, that is exactly what we are doing. When, when we sing that familiar refrain, Rejoice! Rejoice! Emmanuel shall come to you, O Israel. You truly are being connected to something that is cosmic, that is global, that is invisible, and that is transcendent. This hymn, originally in Latin, takes us back over 1,200 years. Think about that. For at least 1,200 years, as best we can tell so far, the church around the world has sung the verses to this song, has chanted this familiar refrain, O come, O come, Emmanuel. It was written originally by monks and sung by those living the monastic lifestyle. How it was set up is that it's originally seven verses. And it would have begun seven days before Christmas. And how it's set up is there would be the, the verse would be sung, and then there would be another group that would respond with the refrain, O come, O come, Emmanuel. 
And you would go starting on December the 18th all the way up through Christmas Eve where there would then be the anticipation that the Christ would come tomorrow. The music that uh, accompanies this song, it, interestingly enough, I find, was, was put to the tune about uh, somewhere about 500 years ago. But the tune is actually a funeral or a burial chant that was put to it. it that's why it kind of has this deep, lowing kind of moaning in it, but yet the song is rejoice, rejoice. But yet if you read the words, you can feel kind of the depths of despair in places that they're, they're waiting on the Christ to come, but yet the days seem to be dark in their waiting. The original title of the song is not O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. For centuries, it was known by one of two ways. One, the O Antiphons, which you would have had a screen if we were at service, and you would have seen that as A-N-T-I-P-H-O-N-S, or it was called the Great O's, right? So, O come, O come. So it was called the Great O's. And, and the purpose of this, as in monastic chanting usually, usually happened, was to designate and to concentrate the mind on the coming Christmas, enriching the meaning of the Incarnation um, with a complex series of references from the Old and New Testament. And so the word antiphon, as it was originally titled, actually means opposite voice. So what you would have is you would have one group sing the, the original verse, and then the other group would respond with the refrain. This is what's taking place, and then it would be, come to us, Emmanuel. We need you here with us in this moment. And here again, this is not going to make a lot of sense to you because you would have had this all up in Latin on your screen if we were meeting outside. But the, um, the antiphons, the verses, they're actually in a different order originally, and they're originally in Latin. But it's really cool the way this is written and plays itself out. So if you were to, to look at this originally, the, the first line, the first verse would have been O Sapentia, which is the Latin word for wisdom. The second one would have been O Adonai, which is the Hebrew word for God. The third would have been O Radix Jesse, so the stem or the root of Jesse. The fourth one would have been O Clavis David, the, the key of David. The fifth one would have been O Orions, which is the day spring. Uh, the sixth one would have been O Rex Genitum, which is king of the Gentiles. And the last one would have been O Emmanuel. Now what's really neat about this and why I take you through this, because it's actually a very clever acrostic. But it's almost kind of riddle-like in a way because you actually don't go from the top down. You actually go from the bottom back up as you read it because the, the, the acrostic actually spells out Sarkor. So Sapentia, Adonai, Radix, Clavis, Orions, Rex, and Emmanuel. It spells out Sarkor. But if you go back up, it's actually two words in Latin, ero, cross, E-R-O-C-R-A-S. And the meaning in Latin is I will be present tomorrow. So now you see why it was sung on December 18th through the 24th, that the whole movement is that over these seven days, one verse per day with the refrain, that this promise on Christmas Eve to the church was, I will be present tomorrow. And that is when the Christ makes His first advent into the world. And so... The, the entire hymn is written, the entire chant is written to meditate and dwell on the titles of the Messiah. 
So when you spend some time singing this song or thinking about this song uh, in the coming days, realize these are big, huge titles given to Jesus. And they're specifically given out of the book of Isaiah. All of these verses are taken uh, and inspired by verses that were written in Isaiah that give us titles of the coming Christ. And so we're going to walk through those this morning. Uh, the first one is O Sapentia, which would be wisdom if you're looking at the words to the song right now. In Isaiah, it says, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. This hymn begins reminding us that in Christ, all wisdom is found. Think about the teachings of Jesus. Think about the sayings of Jesus. How wise and true and beautiful they are. Think about all of the speech in the Scripture that tells us that the Christ would be full of wisdom. Think about His teaching. That is where we should reflect in this first verse. The second verse, O Adonai, which is the Hebrew word for God, reminds us and calls our minds to think upon this in Isaiah 11 and Isaiah 33. But with righteousness He shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of His mouth and with the breath of His lips He shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt around His waist and faithfulness the belt around His loins. For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our ruler. The Lord is our King. He will save us. These verses call to us and remind us that Christ is not just the Lamb. So, so much of the church is talked about and focuses on Jesus Christ as the Lamb, as the sacrifice for our sins, as the atonement for our sins, as the way that our sins can be forgiven before a holy God. But Scripture also speaks as Jesus as the Lion, the One who will come and will wipe out and rid the enemy of the earth, of the enemies of God that this Christ is that powerful, that He will one day reign and rule in righteousness and no evil can stand before Him. The third verse is, O Radix Jesse, which is the stem or the root of Jesse. Out of Isaiah 11, it tells us, A shoot shall come out from the stock of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. On that day, the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal to the peoples, the nation shall inquire of him, and his dwelling shall be glorious. Now you have to realize Jesse is the David of uh, Jesse is the father of King David. That happened around 1000 BC. Isaiah is writing around 750 BC, and so 250 years later, but 750 years before the coming of Christ. And then we can see through the genealogical record that this happened exactly as Isaiah said it would that Jesus would be born through the line of David. If you want to check that out, go read Matthew chapter 1. But once again, we see the, the faithfulness of God to do exactly what He said He was going to do. 
Jesus was born in the line of Jesse. The fourth line, O Clavis David, the, the key of David. Isaiah says this to us, I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and no one shall shut. He shall shut and no one shall open. His authority shall grow continually and there shall be endless peace for the throne of David and his kingdom. He will establish and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from the time onwards and forevermore. To open the blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners from prison and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. As I reflected on these verses, it, it really took me to John chapter 10 where Jesus speaks of being uh, not only the shepherd, but the one who controls the gate. Jesus is the one who opens doors. Jesus is the one who closes doors. We are given this promise that His authority shall grow continually and there shall be endless peace for the throne of David and His kingdom. I think many times in the church today, we, we feel as if the world is going to hell in a handbasket. It's all getting wor worse around us. But I think if you think of this in a different context from Isaiah 9-7, that His authority shall grow continually. Where do we see the authority of Christ growing continually around the world? And it's in the hearts of men. We are seeing the Gospel go into the, the deepest reaches of our world, places it's never been before. The church in Iran has more Christians in the last 20 years than it's had in the last 2,000 years. The gospel is going around the world. Christ is conquering the hearts of men and His authority in their lives is growing continually. The gospel is not losing, but the gospel is winning, church. Blind eyes are being opened. Prisoners are being set free. Those who were in the dark are now seeing the light. Which leads us into the next verse. Oh, Orion's, oh, oh, or the day spring. Sometimes it is referred to as the morning star. In Isaiah chapter 9, we are told, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who lived in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. Church, think about that. The Scriptures declare that Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is revealing Himself to men, to women, and children around the world. There are those who are in darkness that are now seeing the light. May we pray and may we do all that we can to help people see the light of Christ. The sixth verse is, O Rex Genitum. King of the Gentiles, we are told in what a verse we are told in Isaiah 9:6, a verse that is so familiar to, the, to those who are in the Christmas season and have been around the church for a while. For a child has been born for us, a son given us, authority rests upon his shoulders, and his name is wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Jesus is King of the Gentiles. Jesus is also King of the entire universe. We are told in Colossians 1, 15-20 that there is nothing outside the control of King Jesus. This is reaffirmed in Hebrews 2, 8, and 9. It says, Though everything may look outside of His control, rest assured everything is in the control of King Jesus. King Jesus is King of 
over the universe, even those Gentiles who rebel against Him and would be against Him. And the last verse is, O Emmanuel, the the one that we usually sing first uh, when we sing this Christmas song. And Isaiah 7 says to us, Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Look, the young woman is with child and shall bear a son and shall name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Church, remember as you sing this hymn, remember as you meditate on this hymn, which you could start, though you'd be a little, be a little behind, you could start with the third verse today, that God has been faithful in every single one of these promises from Isaiah's uh, prophecies 750 years before the Christ. We've seen every one of these things come true. Will this same God not be, fa- not be faithful to fulfill all of His prophecies that we see in Scripture, in the Old Testament, and the New? All right. I, I hope this makes some sense to you now since you can't see it on the screen and we weren't able to see it together um, this morning. But now we're going to move in, into the sermon part of 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 my message, um, which will uh, which I think um, I think is the most underrated and most underappreciated part of the entire Christmas story. I I love telling this part of the of the Christmas story because usually um, it educates people to teach them some things that they've they've never known before about the Christmas story, and um, I like to have a, a lot of fun with it. So we're going to read Matthew two one through twelve which is um, our passage for today. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler, who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it arose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, Gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. <clears throat> and the reason I enjoy this passage so much and, uh, and this part of the Christmas story is because we get to talk about the Magi, who I think are the most kind of misunderstood people in the entire Christmas story. So, so today we're going to spend a few minutes answering the question, Who are the Magi and why do they matter to this story so much? Now, to tell you the story, we've got to go back a really, really, really long way in history. Okay? Please give me one moment. 
Okay, there is this God named Yahweh who calls this people Israel to Himself. And He gives them these, these covenants and these promises. And one of the promises He gives them in His covenants is that, hey, for obedience, I will pour out blessings on you like crazy. For disobedience, I will pour out cursings on you like crazy. So you need to choose. Are you going to follow me or are you going to not follow me? And Israel over time continually makes the choice to not follow God. Now God is incredibly patient with these people because they rebel, rebel, rebel. They cry out for help. God saves and rescues them, blesses them as well, and they just continue going into this downward spiral. He still, even though they're continually disobedient and rebellious children and, and, and obstinate, he keeps blessing them, trying to show them how good and great and wonderful he is. And, and the pinnacle of this goodness is seen around 1000 BC with King David and King Solomon. But after that, the kingdom splits in half. It just becomes this huge mess. And uh, the nation of Israel just finds itself in all kinds of trouble because it continually rebels against God. It just continues to get fractured. Until we come to this point um, where Jeremiah tells the people that, hey, God is going to send you off into exile. And the exile, it, its beginning is officially marked in 586 B.C. when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, comes and he overruns the entire nation of Israel. And the, the, the nation basically exists no more from a governmental standpoint. And Nebuchadnezzar's form of government, when he conquered a peoples, was to bring, bring the, the, the best and brightest young men into the kingdom, train them in the ways of Babylon so that they could be useful for his kingdom. <clears throat> well, here you will probably find some names you're familiar with. Three guys named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and another guy named Daniel. These were all young men brought into the kingdom under Nebuchadnezzar. And one of them in particular, Daniel, for whom I am named, rises to an unprecedented height in not only the Babylonian kingdom, but also the Persian kingdom as Nebuchadnezzar goes away and Belshazzar and Darius uh, the Mede comes and takes over. But <clears throat> I, I want you to see how this works. So God takes Daniel, He puts him in the place inside of this kingdom, and um, Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. And he wants the wise men, the magi, to come and solve it, and none can do so. So God gives the revelation to, to Daniel. He tells Daniel the dream, and he also gives Daniel the revelation. Daniel comes in, and he uh, interprets this dream for Nebuchadnezzar, and here's what takes place in Daniel 2, 46-48. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. So Daniel is now elevated over all the wise men in Babylon. I'm going to tell you why that's important in a minute. So then you get, he, um, then uh, Bel Belshazzar comes along. He interprets another dream. He gets elevated in the kingdom. Then uh, Darius comes along and it says Daniel was uh, anointed as one of three presidents under the king. 
over all of these other satraps and government officials. There was no one like Daniel. So Daniel effectively becomes number two in command over what is the greatest empire, uh, maybe next to the Romans, the world has ever seen. Now, why is all this important? Remember, Daniel was the head magi. So Daniel would have been been responsible for teaching and instructing all the other magi. And if you know anything about the book of Daniel, you know that Daniel was given in the last half of the book, the first half of the book is narrative, the last half is all of these visions and prophecies that Daniel is given that he recorded for us, which he would have assuredly passed on to these magi. And I just want you to listen uh, to one of them as it's told to us in Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 and 10 and 13 and 14. Daniel said, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him. And 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I saw in the night visions, and behold, the clouds of heaven. There came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not pass be destroyed. All of this was speaking of the coming Christ. And where this intersects into our story is that these magi, these these Gentiles, these astronomers, these astrologers, from the point of learning this, had been anxiously looking to the heavens, looking to the stars, looking to to the sky, when this great sign would appear that would tell them that this king had been born. And that's what we find here in Matthew chapter 2, that for over 500 years, this group of wise men had been anxiously waiting. Not, Not those in the line of Israel, not those of the people of Israel, but Gentiles were anxiously waiting the arrival of the king. Now, the other part of this, which I love to tell in this story, is that almost all of you, if you have a nativity scene at your home, or you go home to your parents and go to the nativity scene, almost all of them are going to be theologically incorrect. And I love going to people's homes, seeing that their nativity scene is theologically incorrect, taking the wise men and placing them as far away from the nativity scene as possible, for that is exactly where they are when Jesus is born. Now, how do I know all this and why do I like to have fun with people doing all this? Well, the fun part just comes with my personality, but the reason it's important is because it's misunderstood because people think, oh, the wise men were there when Jesus was born. And no, they were really far away. It was about a 12 to 18 month journey from where they were to get to what is now toddler Jesus. So the wise men don't get baby Jesus, they get there with toddler Jesus, okay? And they came in this grand caravan. They came with this massive amount of people, this massive amount of animals. They had traveled all this way. So it was a great effort 
great pomp and circumstance for them to travel this far and to come see Jesus. So just once again, if you have an nativity scene, put the wise men on the other side of the room and uh, Jesus will love you more for it. No, he really won't. But uh, I do want your nativity scenes to be theologically correct. So they came and we pick up here in the story that, hey, we've seen this great light. We've come to worship him. And they tell King Herod and it says, this is very key, he was troubled. Okay, so now we're going to switch over to King Herod. Now, King Herod, um, God God rest his soul. Uh, I don't imagine his soul is resting very much right now um, where he is. But uh, this dude was nuts. I mean, you want to talk about paranoid, uh, worried about someone stealing his position and his throne. Uh, insane. But yet he's also known as Herod the Great. Well, why is he known as Herod the Great if he was really this tyrannical, paranoid nut job? Because when it came to building things, man, there is nothing. I've been to Israel. I have seen the things this guy oversaw and built. It is insane. Almost all of the great buildings and architecture from, from those days in Jesus' time, Herod built almost all of them, and they are spectacular. But as, as spectacular a builder as he was, he was just as spectacularly paranoid, okay? If he even sensed for a moment there might be one day that you might um, desire to, uh, to be king or, or that people actually liked you, he would just have you off. He would just off you if he didn't like you. I mean, he had a nephew who, who was handsome and people thought like, huh, that guy, that young man is handsome. He felt threatened because someone said he was handsome. He orchestrated this entire event to have him drowned in a pool party. He killed two of his sons who he thought might be interested in his throne. Um, he killed his wife, uh, and he also killed his mother-in-law. I mean, this dude killed anybody for any reason because he was so paranoid. So you take this guy who we know from the history books is incredibly paranoid, and then you have these guys who are the Magi. And not only were they the Magi, they were also known as the kingmakers, okay? If you go back in history and you look who these were, and this is all for all my conspiracy theorists, friend, right? This is kind of like the Illuminati. This is all the behind the scenes work. These guys controlled everything. No one could be king in the Persian world unless they had gone through the training and then had received approval from the Magi. So it was incredibly serious when these guys who were orchestrating all the events behind the scenes show up and everybody knew who they were and they show up and they say to Herod, where is the baby king who was born? Herod loses his ever-loving mind. And, and we know this and we, we, we see the, all this in the story because the story that immediately follows this is Herod ordering the execution of all baby boys two years and younger. Again, even further saying that the wise men weren't there uh, at the birth, that it was a 12 to 18 month journey because, and Herod going, okay, let's go two years and back so that we can eradicate this king. But of course, right before he issues that decree, an angel comes to Mary and Joseph and tells them to flee to Egypt, which also was a prophecy in scripture that the Christ would come out of Egypt. Again, God has beautifully woven all of this story together in history and it is just amazing when you can see all the pieces and all the threads together. So, okay, so now we have Herod who is, who is troubled and who is uh, on this murderous rampage to try and destroy the Christ child. 
The wise men are warned, don't go back that way. They secretly uh, sneak off and get away from Herod. So, so far, here, here's what we've seen. We've seen the wise men, who are these Gentiles, who would have been the least likely people to come and worship King Jesus. <clears throat> they had been anxiously waiting for 500 years to do so. Then you've got Herod, who is maniacal and trying to kill baby Jesus. But the question, the, 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 the third group here that appears, that really just kind of we blow past, are the chief priests and the scribes of the people. And it's like, they're the ones with the Scripture. They're the ones who have been given all of these promises. I mean, they're the ones who, who knew exactly where He was to be born. But yet, they make no efforts to go and to see Him and to find Him and to rejoice. And so their response to the Christ being born is nothing. They just go on about their daily lives as if none of it was true, as if none of it was happening. And so I, I, I always like to take this story, assuming we don't have any Herods in here trying to kill baby Jesus, um, but, but just asking you, like in this season, like is your heart in this place that you find yourself more like the Magi, worshiping King Jesus, longing for, the, for King Jesus, anticipating Christmas Day for its true intent and, and, and purpose to, to celebrate Emmanuel coming with us? Or is your heart and life in the place where you're just kind of like, eh, I'm just going through the motion of, of the Christmas season. Uh, I just want to be here. I just want to get over with. It, it's become all about the presents, all about the trees, all about the, the candy and, and the cookies um, and the presents. Where, where, where is your heart in all this? And this year it may be a little more difficult to even, to even get gathered around this, right? I mean, you're probably just getting home uh, with, with family and friends, but 2020 has had so many distractions. And so the, what, what I had planned for you that this morning was to do 15 minutes on the hymn, 15 minutes talking about the Magi, and then we were going to do a 15-minute time of reflection and response uh, going through three verses of the hymn. Now, uh, as you can tell, uh, I, you're not even going to get Christmas music on the recording this morning. Um, but um, I'm going to try to do a modified version of this because the plan was we were going to sing uh, the way it would have been done. And then we would have had this time of response connecting you to how this would have been originally done way back in the day. But 2020 has a, has a sidetracked us here a little bit this morning. So here's what I'm going to do. Uh, we're going to walk through three verses. Basically, I'm going to read three verses. And then I'm just going I'm going to read a verse. And then I'm just going to pray through it for a minute. Because um, I just think it's important with everything going on in the world right now um, and, and what's going on. And so I'll read one, pray. Read the second one, pray. Read the third one, pray. Um, and, and then we'll be done. So just hang in there with hang in there with me for a few more minutes. The first verse that we'll walk through this morning is the one that we traditionally sing first: "O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee." O Israel. Father, 
as I think about these words and, and I think about the blessed reality that Emmanuel has come. That the second person of the Trinity, the Son, has taken on flesh and we know Him by His name and by His title, Jesus the Christ. God, we thank You that we, as the children of God, have been ransomed. But God, we also know that there are many who still live in captivity. And God, we ask You to set them free. God, there is so much mourning going on in the world today. There is so much loneliness. People feeling as if they are living in exile because they are cut off from family and friends this holiday season. God, we pray in the same way that the Christ appeared physically over 2,000 years ago, that He would appear spiritually in their hearts and shine a bright light upon them. So that all around the world, in the darkness of this season, that people's refrain would be from that, from moaning in misery, to rejoice, rejoice. Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. May the Spirit be quick to bring this about in the hearts and lives of those who do not know You. But may He also bring this joy about to those who do know You, who are mourning in lonely exile in this life. The second verse, O come, thou rod of Jesse, free thine own from Satan's tyranny. From depths of hell thy people save, and give them victory or the grave. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, shall come to thee, O Israel. Father, I, I chose this verse because there are so many who feel trapped in Satan's tyranny. But God, I wanted to remind us that no matter what we are going through, no, no matter what depths of hell we may be experiencing in our own soul, in our own life, in our own circumstances, that God, if we are in Christ, if we have been redeemed, if we have been saved, then You have given us victory over the grave. That, that though this life may be trying and though it may be difficult, the ultimate reality is we have been given victory over the grave. That, 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 that when we pass from this life, that when the difficulties of this life is over, we will be forever reunited with You. That we do not have to fear death in any way, shape, or form because our promise, we have promises in this life, but there are, but there are blessings awaiting us that we cannot fathom or imagine. And in that, we should rejoice, rejoice. Emmanuel shall come to Thee, O Israel. And the last verse that I had chosen this morning was, O come, thou day spring, come and cheer. Our spirits by thine advent here. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows put to flight. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel. Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. God, my prayer is that now you would just disperse the gloomy clouds of night. For those who are your children and for those who aren't your children who are listening to this. God, I pray that in whatever way is, is needed and necessary in their lives, that God, You would disperse 
the gloomy clouds in their soul. And you would put death's dark shadows to flight. That in the same way that we are promised that Christ is the day spring. He is the bright light, the morning star. I pray that the light of Christ would shine into the hearts of men and women and children everywhere who, who are hearing this and who are not hearing this. Father, we ask You to do this because we are told that Jesus is the light of the world. And we are told in Your Word that darkness cannot overcome the light. So God, we ask You to shine bright the light of Christ into our hearts, into our lives, into our souls. And may we walk truly rejoicing that Emmanuel has come to us once and will once again come to us in the future.